Welcome to Fruit Snacks, a weekday podcast that covers big ideas about the Christian worldview in a bite-sized format. Hey everyone, today we are picking back up with our discussion on why God would allow children to die. And I told you that today on this episode, we're going to look at an example from scripture where God not only allowed children to die, he explicitly commanded it. And I want us to look at it because this Canaanite genocide, as it is called and referred to mostly by skeptics of Christianity, is an example that has come up time and time again, Uh, comes up a lot on YouTube, comes up a lot on college campuses. And so it's something I want us to discuss because there are answers to it that we, uh, I think, will find rationally satisfying, but only if we're willing to look at things from maybe God's perspective or even from a cultural perspective outside our own. And so this example comes from several different passages. We see all the way back in Genesis 15, God talks about the land that he's going to give Israel, that it belongs to these different groups uh, in Canaan. But when we get into Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7, Deuteronomy 20, and even into places like 1 Samuel 15, 3, which is the specific passage here that we'll, we'll talk about, but where God commands them to, as they go into these cities with these peoples, to, quote, devote them to destruction. And this is a specific phrase in Hebrew, and it is used for this idea of giving something completely to God, not saving for themselves anything. And so the idea here is like in 1 Samuel 15, 3, which says, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And so this idea is that the people, while normally if this was not a city or a people group that was devoted to destruction, the Israelites were allowed to keep, say, for instance, some of the spoils, some of the animals, some of the the grains and plants that they uh, and foodstuffs and so on and so forth. But in this case, that's not that's not true. And so when we look at a passage like this from our own modern perspective, it's very tempting to read a verse like 1 Samuel 15, 3 and say, well, this is ethnic cleansing. That's what's going on here, right? But when we understand that there are some of these cities and people groups, they come up in other passages in Scripture, and what we see there doesn't fit the narrative of ethnic cleansing. And I can give you an example out of Joshua chapter 6, and uh, out of Ruth uh, chapter 1. In Joshua 6, 21, it says, Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen and sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. And then four verses later, it says this, But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive, and she has lived in Israel to this day. Now, if the destruction of Jericho was about ethnic cleansing, then there would be no exceptions. Rahab and her family would not have been spared, especially they wouldn't have been included in Israel and and lived with them. 
In Ruth chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, it says this, And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Now, this is a very important key to understanding what's going on here. Because in Joshua, Rahab and her family were spared because Rahab had earlier confessed that basically her and her family had turned to believing in Yahweh, the God of Israel. They had devoted themselves to him. And they had effectively become Israelites, at least religiously. And so after the fall of Jericho, they were grafted in as Gentile believers. And this is part of what we see in Ruth as well. Ruth was part of Moab, which is a Canaanite group. They did not have a great relationship with Israel throughout the, the history of the, the, this region. And yet, Ruth eventually uh, becomes grafted in. Why? Because, as she says to Naomi here in the very first chapter of Ruth, she has devoted herself to being a follower of Yahweh. She has made the one true God her God. And so a big key to understanding what's going on with this uh, destruction here is that a lot of it has to do with spiritual warfare, that these people were worshiping gods who not only were not the one true God, but that were, were leading them into, as we will see, some really, really despicable practices. And so God is punishing them for those practices. So it's not ethnic cleansing because we have specific examples of individuals surviving, which wouldn't be the case if it was just kill people because they are this people because they are part of this people group. Also, we need to ask why the animals? Animals aren't part of ethnic cleansing either. And yet the oxen, the donkeys, the sheep, all of it, they're all destroyed as well. And we need to ask that question, why? Because just on a plain ethnic cleansing way of looking at it, that doesn't that doesn't add up either. I'm going to submit to you that the reason that we see examples like this throughout the Old Testament, as difficult as they are for us from a modern perspective, is that the reason that these people were destroyed wholesale, including all their animals and all their children, it wasn't about who they were. This isn't an ethnic cleansing. This isn't a Hutu Tutsi thing. This isn't a Jewish Holocaust. This isn't a Gypsy Holocaust. This isn't people being rounded up and destroyed because of their blood or who they were. It is about what they did. They are being punished for the things that they practiced. Now, again, we might say, well, then what again, what about the animals and what about the children? I'm going to get to that. But we see in Deuteronomy specific instruction from God not to intermarry with these people, not to graft them into their families because specifically Deuteronomy 7.3, they will turn you and your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Deuteronomy 20.18, they will teach you to do abominable practices that they have also done for their gods. And God is saying, I don't want that for you. You need to... You need to draw a hard line in the sand here. So let's get into some of these Canaanite practices. What were what was so bad that God commanded that they be entirely wiped out wholesale, children, animals, and all? Well, for one, we have specific examples, and this is not just from the Bible. This is from actual 
documentation that's been found, ancient uh, documents and manuscripts from some of these Canaanite areas, from uh, the, the Mediterranean, from Sumerian documents, from Mesopotamian documents, things like that. Uh, incest was a very prominent practice in Canaanite culture. And again, these people, they aped their gods and their goddesses. They did whatever their gods and goddesses did. And according to their uh, tradition and their, their mythology, Baal had sex with his sister at the encouragement of his father, and he also had sex with his own daughter, again, in the uh, Canaanite pantheon. Uh, there was, in Egypt, these things called dream books, and they were meant to be used as a way of interpreting the dreams that you just had. And in Egyptian dream books, they actually list incestuous dreams as good omens. If you dreamed about having incest with a family member, that was supposed to bring good things. Let's not forget that after leaving Sodom, Lot's daughters, uh, which again, Sodom was a Canaanite city, that one of the very first things we read about is after they escape Sodom and all the influence there, that one of the first things Lot's daughters do is they get Lot drunk and they have sex with him, their own father. So incest was a big part of Canaanite culture. It was just accepted because the gods and goddesses did it, and so the people did it as well. Adultery with uh, temple prostitutes. There were uh, ritual uh, sexual practices that happened both male and female, uh, which was a regular part of the Canaanite religion. Child sacrifice. You may have heard of Molech, which was a uh, very detestable Canaanite god, which is mentioned often in the Old Testament. Children up to the age of four would be placed in the arms of Molech, uh, a, a bullheaded brass or bronze uh, statue, and his arms would be outstretched over an open flame. And they would place the children in his arms where they would be roasted to death. And not only did they uh, do this practice on the regular, they actually, they, they knew what was happening because part of this Part of this ritual included drums and horns and flutes that were designed, very frankly, to drown out the sounds of the screaming so that the people who were away down in the towns didn't have to listen to this all day. They knew what they were doing, and they covered it up with music and, and loud noises and things like that. Think about the fact that you could have been growing up in this kind of an environment where you had a little brother or a little sister that just didn't come home one day and you knew what had happened to them because this is what this is what happened in your culture you were conditioned even as a child to think that this is what we had to do to appease Molech to appease the gods and goddesses and this is just as, as much as I don't like it this is just the way it is this is a part of it it's normal to have your brothers and sisters burned to death on an altar homosexuality and other, uh, other sexual practices. There are uh, Babylonian texts that refer to specifically homosexual uh, inter intercourse with male temple prostitutes as part of religious practice. Uh, rape. The biblical account in Sodom uh, does include homosexuality, but it also includes the attempted rape of both men and women. Remember, they wanted the angels who came to Lot first, and then Lot offered them his daughters instead. And then finally, bestiality. Um, Baal, as a, uh, as a Canaanite deity, 
frequently in their text was depicted as having intercourse with animals. And his sister at times would take animal form when he uh, would supposedly have intercourse with her, meaning that not only is that relationship incestuous, it also is a depiction of bestiality as well. Now, I share all that, and that is a lot. I share all that because this is documented data that we have from Canaanite culture. This is the stuff that they believed and the stuff that they did, and there's really no argument about it. This is who they were, and I would again submit to you that this is not genocide. This is not ethnic cleansing. This is capital punishment. That what God is commanding here when he says these people, you need to wipe them off the face of the earth and make it like they never existed. Why would you kill the animals? What are you supposed to do with animals who are used to having sex with people? Because this is what happened. What are you supposed to do that? Do you think that they're going to behave normally? Do you think that they're going to suddenly just be uh, be domesticated once again? Not at all. So this explains why the animals were supposed to be killed. What about the children? Well, let's think very practically here for a second. Other than obey God, what other options did the Israelites really have open to them in a situation like this? If they believed, as I think they, they should have, that the, the people especially the adults, that these were evil people engaged in evil practices. And God is commanding them to carry out divine capital punishment against these people. What are you going to do with the children if you're not going to obey God and and kill them as well? Are you supposed to adopt them? What do you think is going to happen when those children grow up knowing that they now live with the people who killed mom and dad and everyone else? That you, that you knew and loved and grew up with. Do you not think that that's going to breed, at the very least, discontentment within these people? And do you not think that when these children grow up and become big enough and strong enough, that they're not going to seek some sort of retaliation? What about abandoning them? You just leave the children there in the burning city so that they can wander and die in the desert or starve to death? or die of dehydration, or let wild animals come and finish them off. Is that really better? Or could they kill them? Which is what God said to do. And as harsh as that seems to us, again, we have to remember that in this culture, these children were very much a part of all these things that were going on. Not willingly, I'm not suggesting that. I think that they were part of an evil culture, but that they were inculcated into this culture and all of the practices I just mentioned at a very young age, and it was normalized to them. And we struggle with picturing soldiers killing children because, very frankly, we think of our own children. We picture our own children. We picture our nieces and our nephews. We picture an elementary school when we think about this stuff. But again, culturally, In context, that's not what we should be thinking about. We really shouldn't be thinking about innocent, sweet little children who don't know any better and who just want to run around and play games all day. We should be thinking more along the lines of the child soldiers that are produced in horrific contexts in modern societies around the world, in places like uh, Somalia, in places like 
uh, Afghanistan and Iran in radicalized societies where children are taken and are forced to murder and to rape and to do all these terrible things to people at very young ages. What are you supposed to do in, in again, in, in this ancient Israelite context with children like that? They have done and engaged in the very same practices oftentimes as the adults. And it doesn't mean that, again, that there's not layers and, and grades of guilt and blame to go around. There certainly are. But from God's perspective, they were part of this culture and they engaged in these practices and they deserve the same punishment. So I bring us to this example to talk about this because we need to we need to consider the possibility that there are reasons why a just and holy God would allow children to die even in circumstances like those that I just outlined. It is not as cut and dried black and white as we often think, and we often think that way because very honestly, we live in a very insulated culture and and a, a sheltered perspective from the way that life really is, not just around the world today, but historically, the way that life has been for people and for children to grow up in. So tomorrow, I want us to sort of put a, a capstone on this discussion because we're going to we're going to tie it into sort of the final answer for why God would allow this. I gave today as an example from scripture of why God allowed it in the past as just one example. I'm not saying that that is the only reason that God allows children to die. Obviously, that is not the case. But I do want us to see that there's more at play here than just God allowing a bad thing to happen sometimes. Uh, the adults in this culture were responsible for the circumstances that these children grew up in and ultimately who these children grew up to become. And in the same way, uh, the, the child who gets hit by a car, let's say, there are other people as part of that situation. Someone was driving that car. And so there are there's more than just accidents and, and bad things happening here that we need to discuss. And so that's what we're going to talk about tomorrow as we wrap up this question. 